Okay, welcome everybody um, to this edition of the IHR Sport and Leisure History Seminar. Um, I'm Raph Nicholson um, and I'm one of the co-conveners of the seminar. Um, we saw her before, didn't we? Oh. Sorry, if I could just request that everyone just stay on mute um, just for the first bit of Roy's paper um, and then we'll um, take questions at the end. Um, okay, right. So, uh, sorry, I'm struggling a bit with uh, managing everything in the room and on the screen. Um, so yeah, we've got um, Roy Thompson here this evening, um, who is a third year PhD student at De Montfort University in Leicester. Um, and um, his PhD is looking at um, Lincoln City broadly from a kind of fan perspective, is that right, Roy? Um, and the title of his paper this evening is I've been with them longer than my wife, searching for emotional clues in published fan culture, the highs and lows of following Lincoln City 1945 to 2000. So the way that it's going to work is um, Roy's going to talk to us for about 35, 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions at the end. Um, if you've got questions that come up as we go along, then do feel free to type them into the chat box um, and we can come to them at the end. Um, otherwise, we will. Um, there'll be an opportunity uh, for you to unmute yourself right at the end um, and ask Roy any questions that you have. Um, so I'm just going to load up Roy's slides. Over to you, Roy. <laughs> Thank you, Raph. Um, hello, everybody, and good evening. Uh, we have the slide. Yes. My uh, presentation this evening is part of my PhD, which is a history of post-war emotions using Lincoln City as a case study, a largely unsuccessful professional football club located in a provincial area of the country. Before I begin my presentation, I'd just like to reflect on a recent personal experience of emotion in football. Next slide. <coughs> Colin Murphy is a name prominent in Lincoln City's history. As manager, he led the club to two promotions in two separate stints in the 1980s and was the first inductee into the club's Hall of Fame in 2018. I was surprised how personally emotionally affected I was by news of his passing on the 16th of September last year. Colin was the manager when I first went to Cinsel Bank in 1983 and the success he brought the club gave me many happy memories. His passing touched me so deeply that I went to his funeral service at Lincoln Cathedral to pay my respects. And at the service, I was struck by how many ex-players travelled from all over the country and how many Lincoln City supporters attended. It was an emotional occasion. The eulogies encompassed 
nostalgia, grief, love and joy at the memories of a somewhat eccentric man who had devoted his life to football and his family. The tributes brought a tear to my eye and also some laughter at the more amusing tales of Colin's life in football. Despite a much travelled career, Colin based himself in the Lincoln area and the iconic local setting of Lincoln Cathedral gave a strong sense of Colin's identity with the city and illustrated how emotion is often firmly attached to a sense of place. If I could just add that in retirement, Colin was a regular uh, attendee of Lincoln City matches and um, in 2018 was invited by then manager Danny Cowley to lead the team out at Wembley um, when Lincoln uh, won the Checker Trade Trophy final in 2018, um, which uh, his son said was one of the proudest moments of his life um, at the funeral. That's a photo of him there at Wembley. Um, I also had the pleasure of meeting Colin um, and joked with him that the only mistake that he made in his managerial career was not signing me when he scouted our local team when I was 12 or 13, <laughs> um, but signed one of my teammates who actually went on to have a professional career with Lincoln and a few other clubs. But anyway, but after being so personally moved, um, I reflected on football's ability to inspire emotion, but also the difficulty in historicising that emotion. I cannot truly remember how I felt when Colin was manager back in the 80s. I have memories of certain vital matches, certain trips with friends, and memories of other people that I went to games with. But I asked myself the question on the way home, can I really remember and then articulate how I felt in the past? This presentation in its first form was written before Colin died. But it has struck me since that my experience of that day is the heart of the presentation's argument that despite the methodological difficulty in historicising emotion and analysing the memory of emotion, there is still value in attempting to understand the history of ordinary people's emotions in the sporting context. So what are some of the methodological difficulties? Firstly, although we can all recognise feeling happy or sad, calm or angry, academic consensus on a basic definition of emotion remains elusive. Thomas Dixon has argued that the lack of academic consensus on a basic definition of emotion is the subject's definitional malaise. Susan J. Matt has argued that this lack of definition means historians may say they recognise an emotion when they see one, but imprecision is built into the very nature of their research. Nevertheless, scholars of the history of emotions have reached a loose consensus that emotion is primarily socially constructed, or at least there is an element of social construction in the expression of emotion. For example, Monique Shear's work on emotion as practice is influential in placing the embodied emotional experience in context. Next slide, please. 
This presentation will attempt to overcome some of these difficulties by following the lead of Lyndall Roper. Roper has argued that searching for emotional clues in the text of ego documents, such as personal memoirs, letters and autobiographies, can benefit historians researching the history of emotion. Inspired by this argument, I conducted a qualitative search for emotional clues in two recently published collections of Lincoln City fan memoir and the deranged ferret, the most popular Lincoln City fanzine during the 1990s. The paper will limit the subjectivity Matt and Dixon identified by focusing on love because love is arguably one of the most easily recognisable emotions. The argument is that despite the many challenges, the history of emotions can contribute to a better understanding of football's meaning for ordinary people. How supporters express the emotional experience of supporting Lincoln City today and how they expressed emotion in the 1990s will also shed light on some of the continuities and differences in the performance of emotion in different historical contexts. Next slide, please. Such research also challenges the argument that a lack of sources is the reason behind the absence of scholarly investigation into the emotional experience of those who watch sport, despite scholars often citing the fundamental importance of emotion in sports enduring appeal. The significance of social discourse in constructing the self is vital in the analysis. The words people use to describe their past lives and the values and attitudes they express to provide meaning to their narratives are inseparable from the lives they have lived. It is therefore essential to contextualise the relationship between the writer or performer and their perception of how the potential audience will respond to their self-narrative. As in all research, the researcher must also be mindful of the subjective prejudices, biases and personal opinions when analysing the sources. As a lifelong Lincoln City supporter, the insecurity of criticism based on the accusation that the research is simply a fan with a typewriter often looms large, something I aim to guard against with a constant self-re-evaluation of source interpretation. The first publication, Invasion on the Road with Lincoln City, is a collection of supporters' essays about following Lincoln City away from home. The request for contributions from the club, re reproduced on the next slide, um, but on a respected um, fan blogger website said, we want your words to express how we feel and how every other fan feels when travelling to watch the imps. So there's an emotional element in the request for contributions. The judging panel comprised the club's media team published author and Lincoln City fan Ian Plenderleith, freelance journalist and the club blogger. Lincoln City launched the project to raise money for their youth academy in April 27. Immediately after, they had clinched promotion back to the AFL as National League champions and in the aftermath of the team's record-breaking FA Cup run, which saw them become the first non-league team to reach the quarter-finals in over 100 years. Next slide, please. The club quickly published the book to take commercial advantage of the increased interest in the team, which we can see here. 
For context, the average home attendance doubled to 5,162 in 2016-17 from 2,594 in the previous season. And when they played the quarter-final uh, at the Emirates Stadium against Arsenal, 9,000 fans travelled down to London to watch the match. This success is crucial context because at the time there was much derision from fans who had stuck with the club through the bad times towards new supporters attracted by the upturn in the club's fortunes. The self-proclaimed diehards commonly labelled the new supporters plastics. Therefore it is reasonable to suggest that contributors to the book may have sought the acceptance of fellow supporters and established their authenticity by writing about unusual trips or obscure games from the club's past. Such as this one here, which is um, the pictures that go with Gary Parr's story of his trip with friends to Halifax in the cold snap of 1986 to watch what is commonly regarded as one of the worst teams in the club's history draw 1-1 in a meaningless midweek daytime Freight Rover Trophy game. Quite the contrast to the previous slide of all the success. Um, since originally presenting this paper at BSSH 23, I've actually started conducting an oral history project and Gary kindly agreed to participate. When I asked him about this trip, he merely smiled and said it was just a coincidence that he had a day off work and nothing else to do that day. I'm not sure I believed him. So he roped in a couple of friends who decided to skip college to go with him. His attitude was quite matter-of-fact towards an escapade that many might find funny or even a little strange. He downplayed the fact that he had only missed one game home and away since 2003 and only a handful of games over the last 40 years. Indeed, Gary only really became animated when he described in some detail the unfortunate family events such as weddings, funerals and births that conspired against him to miss certain matches. Indeed, he cancelled our first meeting when he realised Lincoln City women were playing at home and he didn't want to miss it. Next slide, please. He provided further insight into his commitment when recounting the tale of leaving Lincoln at 4am in torrential rain for an 11am kickoff at Torquay United on Boxing Day 1990, a round journey of over 500 miles only to find the match postponed when he and his friends arrived at Plainmore. When they got there, the club, the Torquay United actually let them in to inspect the pitch themselves so they could see that, that it was, you know, that's why it had been, uh, been postponed and let them take some pictures, which actually appeared in the local press, I think. Yet despite this attitude, by choosing to submit the tale of the Halifax trip, there is still an element of performing a sense of the authentic deep devotion to the club, as well as a tacit recognition of its entertainment value and interest to a readership that would undoubtedly be Lincoln City supporters, many of whom had either recently found the club or revived a legacy interest due to the recent success. Next slide, please. Another example of supporters demonstrating support for the club based in the unique is the story told by Brian Wilkinson, who recounted how, 
as a 16-year-old boarder at a Lincoln school in 1968, he and a friend hoodwinked their housemaster into granting a weekend pass, not to visit family, but to hitchhike from Lincoln to Swansea to watch a 2-2 draw. It is a tale of schoolboy adventure written with a sense of nostalgia. It involves stories of falling into holes in the ground, sleeping rough in the outside toilet of a pub in Gloucestershire, and eventually making the match midway through the first half. The story had a happy ending after the two intrepid travellers cheekily asked the Lincoln goalkeeper, John Kennedy, for a lift home during a break in play in the match. And to Kennedy's credit, after hearing of their adventure, when meeting the boys after the game, successfully persuaded the manager, a rather gruff Ron Gray, to give them a lift back to Lincoln in the luxury of the team coach. Next slide, please. Other supporters were counted out of the ordinary tales of devotion based on following the imps abroad on pre-season tours and other rare trips. A good example is the story of the time a group of supporters accompanied the team on a charter flight to Workington to watch a 3-0 win in 1972, all for the princely sum of £10. Here is the itinerary, which is not a very good um, picture of it really, but um, it involved a pre-match meal in a hotel in Keswick and getting back to Lincoln at about half past one in the morning. Um, and there's also there the, the, the usual sort of um, plain influence headline of the, of the victory. It is interesting that fans who told stories about recent games in the club's history invariably qualified their support as authentic by mentioning the day of their first game early in their essay. A significant theme in the book is the willingness of men, and particularly men, to express their feelings towards the club as love. For example, Colin Green started his account of following Lincoln round the country for the successful National League title running in 2017 by making the declaration that I've been in love with football and the Imps for as long as I can remember. Warren Walker stated at the beginning of his tale of going to Stockport in 1976 on what he called a magical Monday night as a teenager with a group of friends in a Skoda 100 to witness Lincoln's 100th league goal of a record break of their record-breaking fourth division championship season. My love for Lincoln City started around the 1965-66 season as a six-year-old. Even though we were mainly in the lower half of the league in those years, I was hooked. Matthew Klugman tentatively investigated supporters' love for Australian rules football teams, with love for the nation-state, explored by Benedict Anderson in his influential concept of imagined communities. Anderson located the rise of nation-states in social, cultural and material conditions in social and cultural history, and after much deliberation, argued that only love could adequately explain the readiness of people to die for their country. Klugman concluded that sport supporters' passion for their team was actually comparable, <clears throat> and that the thrill of the chase and the threat of despair and suffering in defeat were factors in explaining what he still concluded was the mystery of fan identification with their teams. The many stories of Gary and Warren and all the other Lincoln supporters that appear in the book appear to reinforce Klugman's argument. 
It is crucial to stress that men dominate the collection, with only two stories from women, a theme also apparent in the second publication, and a reoccurring theme revisited later. Next slide, please. We All Follow the Imps, the second publication, was published in November 2022. Perhaps a less exciting time on the pitch when Lincoln were looking to consolidate and establish themselves as a League One club. The club's advert for contributions was placed during lockdown and asked for supporters' favourite imps memories, from your first time watching the imps, to meeting your hero, to your favourite away day. We'd love to read your stories and feature them in our brand new book. A free signed copy and an invite to a launch event were the only prizes for an article published. And the same judges picked the published stories. Next slide. In common with Invasion, the first publication, the resulting collection of essays includes many expressions of love for Lincoln City. The title of this presentation, I've been with them longer than my wife, is taken from a story by I. Newton, in which he compares the strength and longevity of his relationship with the club to the relationship with his wife, and it could be argued is a public male expression of love for both. The story is also profoundly personal. Newton describes how his father took him to his first match when he was 11 in 1987, two years before his father died after a long battle with cancer. While the account of Newton's first game is full of cliché about the noise, the first sight of the pitch, and the first time hearing grown men swear in public, his reflections illustrate that there's a notable historical relationship between father and football for many football supporters. Next slide, please. Indeed, Geoffrey Piper's sentimental account of watching Lincoln clinch the great escape from Division II relegation in 1958 with a final day comeback win over Cardiff City is not just an account of the game, but a reflection of a 15-year-old boy's relationship with his father in the 1950s. Here he remembers fondly hugging when Lincoln took a 3-1 lead. He also remembers his father bought him his first half pint of beer on the way home, while quaffing one or two himself in celebration. Piper's reflection that although football was a very different game back then, it had, the it had the ability to excite, enthrall and exasperate just as much as it does today, suggests continuity in feeling for supporters from the 1950s to the present day, and something which is at the heart of football's enduring appeal. As I note to this theme, going back to the, my oral history interviews, I've interviewed so far seven long-standing male supporters, who have all said at some point in the interview, or described their relationship with the club at some point in the interview, as love, or at least a sort of love. Next slide, please. Again, the collection is dominated by men. Janice Lott is the sole woman contributor out of 27 stories. She describes how watching Lincoln City as a teenager provided a solitary refuge from the emotional turmoil surrounding her parents' ill-tempered divorce. Her description of a piercing primal wail, my misery lifted in an instant, when Tony Cunningham scored the winner against Chesterfield in November 1981, at the height of her parents' feuding, is perhaps an example of football as an emotional safety valve, 
or even an emotional refuge for supporters to display emotions not considered acceptable in their everyday lives. However, women did appear regularly in male stories. Examples include memories of mother preparing food for hunger and father and son returning home after the game, or portrayed as reluctant participants in family outings to Cecil Bank, or as analogous to a masculine relationship with a feminised club. For example, Steve Haynes referred to Lincoln as his bit on the side when telling the story of his switch of allegiance from Leicester to Lincoln City in the 1980s. And Malcolm Johnson headlined the story, headlined his story of returning to watch Lincoln City after a long period of supporting Merthyr Tidville as getting back with the ex after marriage with Merthyr. Context is essential in the analysis. In the case of We All Follow the Imps, it is reasonable to suggest that the isolation of lockdown during the pandemic influenced some of the sentimentality of the stories. However, the accounts still provide clues into the historic emotional experience of following a lower league football club, particularly the importance of family and especially that of father and son. For instance, Steve Medley ends his story of childhood experience of being a mascot in the 1970s with an emotional reference to his father and how he was so happy his father had lived long enough to see Lincoln finally return to the EFL in 2017 after often ruminating he would not live long enough to see them return after their relegation in 2011. Next slide, please. These themes are perhaps best summed up by Max Eshelby. He concluded his account of a defeat in terrible weather at Accrington in 2020 by thanking his granddad for sharing his passion for Lincoln City with me and his own granddad with him a long time before that. Enduring Lincoln City, for better or for worse, here's to many more memories. The emotional clues in the two collections give an insight into the changing nature of masculinity. The question arose, would the many fathers and grandfathers mentioned in the books write such personal stories about their love of the club in the 1950s, 60s and 70s? Despite the performative aspect of the contributions, it is still clear that displays of emotion by fathers at the football made such an impression on their sons that they chose publicly to recount it decades later. This theme suggests that a public show of male emotion away from football was perhaps historically rare. The English stiff upper lip is a trait embedded in many of the stories. With any sense of displaying an emotion away from this peculiarly English cultural reference book, memorable and worth retelling. A further theme is the number of contributions from supporters who had moved away from the Lincoln area. Of the 46 stories in the two books, 24 mention that they now lived away from Lincoln. Indeed, Max Eshelby's story is also a story of his family's perilous journey to Accrington from Kent during Storm Dennis. Several similar accounts express nostalgia for Lincoln and pride in sticking with the club in their new location. Such stories shed light on the historic role of football clubs in constructing identity. Many of these themes also emerged when searching for emotional clues in the deranged ferry and also provided an opportunity to compare fanzines against contemporary written fan culture. <coughs> contemporary cultural commentators such as Catherine Bennett argued that the growth in the male football supporter confessional 
inspired by Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch, which is an account of his love for Arsenal, was part of a more general confessional culture which drove men to unburden themselves in print in the 1990s. Indeed, in light of the accounts of present-day Lincoln City supporters, Hornby's declaration that I fell in love with football as I was later to fall in love with women remains influential in shaping male expressions of feeling towards their football club. However, what is striking about the pages of the early issues of the deranged ferret is the lack of emotion. Despite three editor changes, the format remained relatively constant. The staples were a letters page, an away day reviews, articles on club-related issues both on and off the pitch. The writing was often crude, quasi-journalistic in style. Mediocre performances on the pitch probably did not help inspire love or any sort of emotion, really. Indeed, until promotion from the bottom division in 1998, the 90s saw the club firmly stuck in mid-table. Attendances really rose above 3,000, except for the odd cup patch. Contributors regularly criticised the apathy of supporters and called for a better atmosphere and more passion at home games. However, <coughs> excuse me, from the mid-1990s, the ferret did become more critical of the club, with anger, not love, the dominant emotion. Barbara Rosewine has argued that in the late 20th century, the proliferation of media sources gave an arena to encourage and even celebrate performative anger, which is clearly apparent in the pages of the ferret. The letters section grew by several pages, and anger at the team's poor performances and the way the club was being run was widespread. Indeed, the chairman at the time, John Reams, publicly accused angry contributors to the ferret as not being proper supporters at Fans Forum, prompting this rather sarcastic response in issue 30 and causing the editors to reflect that maybe they had become too critical of the club in issue 31. Some great stuff in there, how incredibly successful we've been on the pitch during his reign. Next, please. Then in September 1997, leading scorer and fan favourite Gareth Ainsworth was sold for £500,000 to Paul Vale, inspiring the cover. It must have been love, but it's over now. Scholars have routinely argued that sport is a rare space that allows men to openly admire the body of another in a heavily coded way. And it is interesting that the cover articulated the supporter's sense of loss by referencing the lyrics of a song about a romantic breakup. Next slide, please. <coughs> However, in contrast to the cover, as our friend Gary again wrote this, in contrast to the cover, the tribute inside was less emotional, concentrating on the transfer deal's financial benefits to Lincoln and Ainsworth's impressive playing performances. Insight into the love for Ainsworth only appeared at the end of the piece, when the writer commented that Ainsworth showed a commitment to the club equal to that of any supporter, an impression not always given by players. Win, lose or draw, applauding the fans after a game. In 1997, men were now expressing the sense of loss 
of a player in terms of the ending of a love affair, especially if they felt the player reciprocated that love. There was no anger at Ainsworth leaving to go up the leagues. And it's worth noting that on Lincoln's second return to the EFL in 2017, at the first game back, which was away at Wickham Wanderers, who Ainsworth managed, Lincoln supporters sang his name and applauded him after the 2-2 draw. It's also worth noting that in 2017, Ainsworth was voted fourth in a poll of Lincoln legends ran by the club. And in 20, 2021, he was voted first in a, in a um, fan blog podcast poll of um, supporters' favourite uh, favourite players. He came first out of 100 and won it by a mile, apparently. Um, a little bit more about Gareth. He, he, he was captain of a pool team at the local pub, so he went around playing pool. He was often um, found singing on the karaoke in the Turk's Head pub. And his he only played one full season, which was 96-97. He scored 22 goals and didn't miss a game. And I think it's interesting that season came after Euro 96, it came after Oasis at Nebworth, Cool Britannia. And Gareth was a bit of a, a rock star, I think, for Lincoln, and has always been remembered as such. Next slide, please. In common with recent fan memoir, the ferret also illustrated football's role in reasserting largely, again, male identity with locality. And the editors constantly remarked on the number of articles from exiled supporters. This was a letter received from a supporter based in New Zealand and summed up the feelings of many so-called exiles. Lincoln City will always be number one in my heart and I even have my mini scarf in my car back window to prove it, even if no one else has a clue who the Reddings are. Again, the relationship between the writer, the reader and the medium provides crucial context. During the 1990s, the fanzine gave football supporters a platform to publicly reaffirm their identification with Lincoln through expressions of love for Lincoln City. Therefore, published fan culture was and remains a constant for expressing a sense of identity for exiled supporters and illustrates the role of football clubs in constructing identity in what was an age of greater placelessness and individualism. Next slide, please. Again, contributors were overwhelmingly male. There was not a single contribution I could find from a woman until issue 23, and misogyny was common. For example, in 1997, a letter commented on the noticeable increase in women attending matches, concluding that such invaders should go shopping instead. This example highlights some of the challenges in research in the history of emotion. Even in first-hand accounts of sentiments, attitudes, feelings, societal rules and norms shape personal narratives. Sometimes the author may write to conform to these norms and sometimes may write in defiance of them, but the rules continually shape the expression. The influential fever pitch was commonly hailed at the time as a forerunner of a new breed of football writing, self-aware, discerning and reflecting of a new softer masculinity. But it could actually be argued that it reinforced the attitude that football fandom is a wholly masculine pursuit, with father and son relationship at its core. 
Moreover, any author's use of words is an expression of feeling, an attempt to inspire emotion in the reader. And the scholar cannot ignore the performative, or in the case of popular literature, the commercial element. Ironically, the new man packaging of Hornby was said to be a direct appeal to the grown female interest in the game. For men, the expression of love in textual form towards the club and players became more widespread and socially acceptable over time. The research suggests there is a history of football as a place or a community for men to express admiration of other men and emotion, especially love for their club, free from ridicule or judgment. It appears the perceived threat to this fragile masculinity embedded in deep-rooted misogyny, is still a barrier to the inclusion of women in emotional discourse about men's football and provides a possible explanation for the ongoing um, exclusion of women from football supporters' written public expression of emotion. However, such conclusions are in some ways a history of the documents or the ego documents rather than a history of emotions and the question remains, can the historian ever bridge the gap between what people in the past felt and what historians can know about these feelings? This paper has demonstrated that despite the difficulty in capturing the subjective feelings of history, there is still value in attempting to understand supporters' feelings from the available evidence. To conclude, Searching for Love has highlighted the significance of the relationship between football, family and friends and the club's role in constructing local identity and it has shed light on the especially male performance of emotion and particular masculine stereotypes. It highlights the long-standing misogyny in football remains a barrier to the full participation for many women in the public expression of the emotional experience of football fandom. However, fan memories and stories do illustrate that the history of Lincoln City is in large part a history of the club's meaning for its supporters. For every match report in the newspaper, there are some very human emotional stories behind those people in the reported attendance figure. In 2002, Geoffrey Hill argued that future sports history research should be about discovering sports meaning for ordinary people to then fully understand their experiences of broader social and cultural changes. This paper has hopefully demonstrated that the history of emotions is one way the historian can attempt to discover this meaning. Thank you for listening.